The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff. I'm the host of the podcast and director of Advancement and Missions here at the seminary. And I have with me uh, by Zoom here in the studio, Mr. Zach Dotson, a student here at the school. Zach, thanks for joining me. It is a wonderful privilege to be with you this afternoon and to be discussing the federal vision. Well, you have just spoiled the surprise. I didn't even get to say what the subject was, but since you've opened up that can of worms, I'm happy to dive right in. Zach is correct. We are launching what some may term a Zach attack on a what we thought was long-dead heresy, the federal vision, but seems to be gaining speed and a little bit of traction for whatever reason on social media and even in Reformed circles through various publishing outlets and um, and speaking engagements and blog posts and partnerships or what have you that, again, like we said, we thought were on the wane. But yet, here we are talking about the federal vision. And I do want to acknowledge that Zach and I both, as well as uh, pretty much anybody here at Greenville Seminary, do have a strong concern about the federal vision making inroads into Reformed churches. This is, uh, this is something that our faculty and, and our board and many of our students and graduates have been really waging a long and, I would say, laudable combat against in the courts of the church, and we'll probably get into that a little bit today. Zach, do you have anything to add just by way of introduction? I, I think that there is a threat that is posed by federal vision, and I, I think the Seminary's history is an attestation of an institution that on two fronts has stood against it, uh, institutionally as well as ecclesiastically. And I'm, I'm looking forward today, again, to kind of clarifying what it is, explaining why it is dangerous, and putting that out to the general public. Thanks, Zach. And I think those two fronts, just to clarify what you mean by that, is if you see some of the leading edge uh, publications against the federal vision uh, back when you know this stuff was really in its heyday in the early 2000s and, and onward, um, you'll see Greenville Seminary faculty names popping up uh, here, there, and everywhere. For example, in the Auburn Avenue Pros and Cons book, uh, pretty much everybody, uh, well, not everybody, but most of the guys on the con side have some kind of direct connection with Greenville Seminary. You have Dr. Joseph Piper, who at the time was president, now our president emeritus. Dr. Morton Smith, the founder of the school. Uh, Pastor Carl Robbins, who is a longtime board member and has been a mentor to generations of interns here at the school. And then Dr. Rick Phillips, um, who has, again, been a mentor to generations of interns here at the school, is a frequent chapel speaker, a guest speaker in a lot of our classes, and has uh, just been a, a great friend to the seminary over many years. And then jumping over into the ecclesiastical uh, world, I can't get into each of the different study committee reports that have been done on this issue in various NAPARC denominations, but just taking, for example, the OPC report, our own Dr. Um, L. Anthony Curto, Tony Curto, and Dr. Sidney uh, uh, Dyer, Sid Dyer, have both served on, or were both members of the committee on the report on justification, which primarily was a report condemning the federal vision out of the OPC. And um, I'm, 
I'm glad to be here at Greenville Seminary and having these kinds of men instructing me and, and with really, I would say, intimate knowledge of the, uh, the Federal Vision heresy and its dangers. That is absolutely correct. And I'd, I'm curious if you had time to dive into this because I didn't. Uh, I believe our, our founding professor, Dr. Morton Smith, was on the PCA study committee. Is that, is that correct against uh, the Federal Vision? You know, I looked into that again, Zach, and I, I had thought maybe he was, but I think I was confusing it with the Auburn Avenue Pros and Cons uh, book because he it was not on that committee. Now, we did have uh, friends of the seminary on that committee, but not Dr. Smith. And certainly uh, there was input uh, from our faculty in, in the work of that committee in that they cite uh, the Auburn Avenue Pros and Cons book. They cite statements from uh, various faculty members of ours. And then, of course, we've hosted here at the seminary and then also nearby Woodruff Road, PCA uh, Church has also hosted conferences and, and lecture series, particularly on the Federal Vision. If you look up on Sermon Audio, you'll see uh, critiques of the Federal Vision from Dr. Piper, from other faculty members here. And these things have been so useful um, in the thick of the battle. You know, I think there have been some, uh, some other voices that have entered the fray really after the dust had settled. Uh, who have been helpful more or less in terms of uh, keeping an eye on things or what have you. But if you go back and you look at, at really who was at the forefront of the defense of the gospel, of saving grace in Jesus Christ, you'll see that Greenville Seminary men were, were really right there holding the line against the federal vision and against its, what I would say, soul-crushing doctrine of salvation by faithfulness. That is um, absolutely correct, and salvation by faithfulness is obviously a, a point of doctrine, one of the errant uh, doctrines of federal vision. But before we get to that, maybe we could uh, define federal vision and explain a little bit of its history and the theological milieu in which it arose out of. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, that's a great starting point, Zach. And um, really, I want to go and and look at a the denominational study committee reports on what is the federal vision and why is it uh, and in evaluating it, why is it bad or assessing it? Um, what's difficult about doing that is generally, I would like to go to the source, to people who hold to a particular view to come up with a definition. But that's really hard to do in the Federal Vision precisely because it is so amorphous. It is so nebulous. It was difficult to pin down. But the RCUS Study Committee report has uh, a useful um, statement here, and, and they open it up right here. The purpose of the Federal Vision from its inception was to interpret Scripture and the world by means of a covenant perspective Hence, its name. Uh, this was a laudable goal, but what emerged from the 2002 Pastors Conference sponsored by the Auburn Avenue Presbyterian Church of Monroe, Louisiana, with, was anything but praiseworthy. Its main tenets were extracted from Norman Shepard, N.T. Wright, and John Williamson Nevin, and were informed by a post-Kantian philosophy with no two proponents of the federal vision offering the same formulation. The new perspectives on Paul, baptismal regeneration, and paedo-communion, for example, are, both, are all affirmed and denied 
among its supporters. Because of this diversity, some Federal Vision advocates have argued that the Federal Vision is neither a movement nor a theology of particular concern to this committee, again, this is the RCUS report, was the Federal Vision's doctrine of justification. Most of the key personalities supporting the Federal Vision would insist, and many have insisted, that they unequivocally affirm this important biblical teaching, yet their writings demonstrate that the doctrine they teach is not the biblical doctrine is understood and taught by the historic reform standards, but is something quite different. And so that, that's a bit of an entree into defining it. Um, we could go elsewhere. Zach, do you might, might you have a stricter definition of the federal vision if you were pressed? I, I think the RCUS committee report offers a helpful uh, starting point. If I was to define, and th I think this is really the difficult thing, and I'll, I'll give a shout out to one of our graduates who's a pastor of a, of a PCA church down in Florida. He sent me his paper actually a couple of years ago, and it was it was entitled Federal Vision, the Theological Whack-A-Mole, or the Theological Game of Whack-A-Mole. That was Stephen Spinner Weber who wrote it, by the way. Um, he also told me that on the front page, the title page, a certain Dr. Piper, our president emeritus, wrote in red ink, what is the game of whack-a-mole? So, <laughs> um, but obviously for our listeners, whack-a-mole is an arcade game where you pay like 50 cents and there's all these little moles that pop out of the ground and you have a hammer or kind of a bat and you try to pop one and as soon as you hit one another one pops up it's a great game. and that really i think is an apt description of federal vision there are certain uniting characteristics which the rcus laid out um and when you hit one you haven't hit them all and they're not all necessarily agreed with one another so i will i will give you a few what i i think are key defining characteristics of the federal vision. And we're going to get more into these in a minute, but really quickly, the first thing I would say, a defining characteristic of federal vision is covenant is seen primarily and almost exclusively as a relationship. The second key and defining characteristic of the federal vision that I would offer is a, I want to be careful how I phrase this, but it is a minimization of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly uh, of his active obedience and the imputation thereof. And again, we're going to touch on that. Yeah. And, and I think, um, the, the last key factor I would speak about, again, goes back to kind of covenant and ecclesiology. We're going to speak about all of this. But they are, the federal vision is going to collapse covenant and election together. So if, if you are in the covenant, you're going to be the elect. And they'll even go so far as to talk about covenantal election. So those are three elements. And I would give you three, um, I suppose we could say, really perhaps good uh, kind of warning signs of federal vision. And, and these are not necessarily things that I would say hold up on their own. I'm just speaking for what I've observed. Um, the first warning sign I would say 
is if you, if you let's say you go to a church where uh, presumptive regeneration is the view of baptism, pedo communion is offered, and it's very liturgical, uh, coupled with um, a heavy, heavy emphasis on the covenant, I would, I would say you might be in, in somewhere that is federal vision friendly. Now, I want to be careful. Obviously, I'm, I'm an exclusive psalmist, and I follow the Puritan tradition, and I have little time for liturgy. I'm not condemning, I'm not condemning all liturgy. I do condemn pedo communion. I do condemn presumptive regeneration. But I'm, I'm basically trying to give you a picture of a church. In fact, I, I will say this. I think this might be the best descriptor. If you go to a church and its name is Reformed and you walk in and the minister is wearing like an alb and there's pedo communion and there's all of this stuff going on, I'm sorry, you might have walked into a Federal Vision sympathetic church. Or the Lutherans have started going by Reformed. And I don't mean that as a slight to any Lutherans, but... <laughs> Zach, that's all really helpful, and I think it is wise to keep an eye out for what, what you call clear warning signs while also uh, you know, just being careful not to rush to judgment and say everything's federal vision uh, that, that even smacks of any of this. Because I know good Anglican brothers who have no time for the federal vision, but yet have forms. In fact, even beyond that, guys who would have the word reformed in their church, the URCNA, a lot of what they do is based on liturgical forms, and they prize these things. And certainly, we can't say that the URCNA as a whole is a bastion of federal vision. I mean, there's a lot of interest in the federal vision coming out of the URCNA, but I wouldn't necessarily say sympathetic interest. I'd say more passionate interest in the issue. No, I, I should I should clarify. When I say liturgical focus, I'm familiar that the Dutch church has forms. I'm familiar there's the Book of Common Prayer, which has forms and so on. I'm I'm not necessarily speaking about that. I mean, I suppose you could say that's a factor, but let me let me perhaps clarify it. If you walk into a church that has reformed in its name, and that you open up their bulletin, it says, "Here's our liturgy," and it's the bulletin or it's the liturgy of Saint Cyril. You might be in federal vision land. Yeah, yeah, got it. Does that does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. I'm good. I just want I want to protect our URCNA brethren from any uh, undue um, implication in in the federal vision here. Zach, <laughs> I'm not trying I, to implicate the URC. <laughs> just just to be clear. Um. Zach, that was really helpful, what, what you walked us through. Can you set in context for us, because I know you've done a lot of reading on this yourself, uh, give us some of the theological context or milieu of the federal vision. Where does this movement come out of? What are its chief concerns, and how are those concerns tied to its antecedent uh, theological influences and movements? I suppose on, on, on one hand, the, the best way to answer this is if we got about five hours, but I tried you to, got about 30 seconds. All right. I tried to condense this down as best I could. So I'm going to give you kind of the 19th to early 20th century antecedent. So um, first key antecedent is going to be neo-Calvinism popularized by Abraham Kuyper. Um, Abraham Kuyper is going to set out certain tenets that the federal visionists are going to extrapolate on. 
Um, and I think the key emphasis, or the, maybe the key tenet, is uh, transformationalism, which is going to emphasize cultural and societal change. Also, neo-Calvinism as a movement has been accused of being hyper-covenantal. And if you would like to read up on that, I would recommend that you see Dr. William Young's paper, Historic Calvinism versus Neo-Calvinism, which has been printed by RHB in, in a collected volume of Dr. Young's writings. But hyper-covenantism, so a very heavy, um, I guess you could say, emphasis on the covenant. So that's, that's number one. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that Kuiper was federal vision or that Kuiper is directly responsible. I'm, I'm giving the milieu in which this arose from. That would be anachronistic anyway to try to impress federal vision or, or, or put it on somebody who, who lived well before the movement ever kicked off. Secondly, the RCUS mentioned this, and I thought this is, is a worthwhile one to mention, Mercersburg Theology. Uh, John Williamson Nevin and Philip Schaff were teaching at the uh, German Reformed Church, or RCUS's, seminary at the time in Mercersburg, Pennsylvania. This is in the 19th century. And Mercersburg theology, I hate to say it, very liturgical when the German Reformed Church was not as liturgical, very high view of the sacraments, emphasized as well covenantal objectivity, which is going to come to be a big part of federal vision. Also, Hegelian views of history, and that's really what I'm zeroing in on in, in Mercersburg theology. The Mercersburg guys loved kind of organic development, and we see a lot of that same language used by proponents of federal vision, this kind of organicism and, and that sort of thing. So Mercersburg theology is arguably a forerunner of it, and... Just, just to be clear, the RCUS implicated that, so I think I'm on safe ground. Uh, a third leg to the milieu is going to be uh, Skildarian covenant views. Again, some people adopted Klaus Skilder's views and then expanded upon those views. I'm not saying Klaus Skilder was federal vision. Again, that would be anachronistic, but the covenant views of Klaus Skilder and like-minded theologians from that school of thought have played part and parcel into some of the federal vision uh, thinking. Uh, another factor is going to be the new perspective on Paul. And that was really, I think you could say, popularized by a guy named E.P. Sanders and made more popular by N.T. Wright. And really quick uh, kind of understanding the new perspective on Paul, you take your stereotypical Pharisee who's working to justify himself, you flip that paradigm on its head, and you say, no, the Pharisees were already justified. They were working to maintain their justification. So that is new perspective on Paul. So basically it flips our understanding of justification and Paul's writings utterly on its head. Um, Another leg of this that's going to kind of come into play is Norman Shepard. He's going to be heavily influenced by the new perspective on Paul. Norman Shepard is going to heavily influence these men. And then lastly, and probably the most immediate antecedent movement is going to be Christian Reconstructionism, which is going to incorporate a lot of this stuff together, and it's going to become federal vision. Now, understand... 
Christian Reconstructionism and the RPCUS under uh, Dr. Joe Moorcraft, they were some of the first people to see this stuff for what it is and condemn it. So the Reconstructionist movement is not, is not you know, if you're a Reconstructionist, you're not a federal visionist. But the Reconstructionist movement with its heavy, influ- or heavy emphasis on political change and its influence on, for lack of a better way of saying it, covenantal objectivity, um, I think influenced this coming about. So those, that's kind of the milieu in which it arose from. That's extremely helpful. Now, moving, we, we have to move on from that to get really into the, the meat and bones of our critique here. But where, where is this movement now? Where, what is the state of the federal vision? I, I spoke to one guy who used to be involved with the federal vision and, and repudiated it and really distanced himself from it. And he, he says to me, you know, there is no more federal vision. It's really just lightheartism. That's really it. But yet you and I have noticed on social media and just in, in, in other reform circles that there seems to be a renewal of interest in the writings of James Jordan and Pete Lightheart and distinctives of the federal vision. So what is your sense of the current state of affairs for the FV? When, when I think about the federal vision, I, I'm, I'm obviously thinking historically here, if you're familiar with the the discipline case of of Peter Lighthart and the PCA, and that's that's a whole can of worms, but my point being, I do not think the federal vision was ever really effectively uh, put down, um, and I I think I don't think it's necessarily widespread, but I think there is a group of individuals that have always held to the federal vision and are actively promoting the federal vision. And I'm, I'm concerned that the popularity of certain people, um, I shouldn't say popularity of certain people. Let me say it better this way. I'm concerned the influence of certain people, certain you know things being published, certain things being looked at online, I'm concerned that these things are contributing again to the federal vision kind of rising, uh, being on the ascendancy in the ref- in reformed churches. And I think the federal vision has found its, its niche actually in the culture wars um, because a lot of these individuals have very strong uh, patriarchal views. They're very anti-feministic, so they oppose feminism totally. They're very big on gender roles and that sort of thing. And, and so, again, you have to be careful not to lump everybody into one camp. But it is interesting that uh, all of a sudden the writings of James B. Jordan and Peter Lightheart are, are beginning to pick up again. And it's related, it seems, to the culture wars. And that's my observation, at least. Thanks, Zach. I think that's really helpful. And, and from what I know... Uh, you know, there's a denominational home for the federal vision, not that everybody in this denomination hold to it, but uh, in Crack, um, there is a safe place for federal vision uh, proponents to, to, uh, to basically maintain uh, ecclesiastical credentials and outside of NAPARC. But even within NAPARC, there are uh, kind of remote corners in, in NAPARC denominations where uh, I know that there are federal vision proponents 
um, continuing to teach the, the distinctives of the federal vision with impunity. Uh, the one place in particular that comes to mind is Missouri Presbytery of the PCA as one of these remote corners of, uh, of NAPARC denominations. And then, of course, the federal vision is a common theme, it is, is brought up again and again, um, perhaps ironically, by those who are most virulently opposed to it on social media and particularly on Twitter. I see federal vision mentioned again and again and again. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's important to speak clearly about what it is, what it isn't, and why it is, in fact, uh, dangerous and uh, spiritually abusive in certain cases. Um, and, and with that, I think we can move into a discussion of points of doctrine where the error is most obvious and dangerous. And usually, where, where would, where would um, crit critiques of the federal vision really land? Where would they focus, Zach, in terms of theology? What loci? If, if we're looking at the low side of theology, where are most of these things going to stick? I would say really uh, a soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. There, there's going to be some, from that soteriological view, it's going to run into the doctrine of the covenant, uh, doctrine, I should say Christology, it's going to run into Christology, it runs into ecclesiology, which is obviously the study and doctrine of the church. Um, and, and perhaps even more as an underlying principle, it, it, maybe their presuppositions are bad in the sense that the federal visionist hermeneutic, hermeneutical method is flawed, I think kind of outright. So uh, to kind of put that in, in more simplistic terms, I would say it comes in in soteriology, uh, salvation, it comes in in covenant theology as well as the doctrine of the church or ecclesiology and all of that is underlined i would say by the ability or the inability to interpret scripture correctly so it has a bad hermeneutical method i think you're you're precisely right on that zach um and last uh, last semester in my uh, Christ and Salvation class with Dr. Piper, I actually wrote my term paper on the federal vision so as to get more of a handle myself on what it is and what, what it's uh, seeking to accomplish or communicate in terms of theology and, and, and also then developments post quote unquote federal vision uh, uh, movement collapsing upon itself or whatever. And what I noticed is that all, all of these errors from their sacramentology, which is housed under ecclesiology, to their covenant theology, which is housed under soteriology, uh, all of it really rests upon a faulty Christology, a faulty understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done for the elect. And, and their understanding of the atonement and the work of Christ perhaps nowhere more fully developed than in Peter Lightheart's 2016 publication, Delivered from the Elements of the World, Atonement, Justification, and Mission. Um, there, that whole project there, I think, undergirds a lot of this. And, and I want to unpack that a little bit, and then I'm going to open up the floor or the, the microphone here for you, uh, Zach, to dive into some of the other aspects. But what I noticed is that um, Jim Jordan at... at kind of early on in the federal vision movement, put forward a view of Christ's work that de-emphasized, in fact, even denied anything meritorious, and in its place 
put forward this idea of maturity. So he denies uh, the meritorious aspects of Christ's work and, and puts in its place instead that Christ matured on our behalf rather than merited salvation. Now, of course, that, that ties into covenant theology and, and why exactly do we need merit? Why, you know, what is maturity in, in Jordan's scheme? How does it work out? But that article there is called Merit Versus Maturity. What did Jesus do for us? It's pretty obvious what he what he's seeking to do there. And, and the conclusion is that Christ came not to merit salvation because Adam could never have merited salvation, but rather he came to attain maturity, which is what Adam failed to do in the garden. Adam didn't fail to merit or, or justify himself, but Adam failed to mature into uh, kind of the post-probationary creature he was supposed to, to be. And, and and with Jordan, then, other proponents of the federal vision argue against understanding Christ's work as merit by rejecting the Reformed doctrine of the covenant of works. And, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But what Lightheart does in 2016 is he advances a social theory of the atonement based upon a theological interpretation of Scripture in which he credits Jordan with shaping his view of Adam's situation in Eden. And in and, and detailing that story of the atonement, Lightheart presents Adam as, quote, a child servant in the garden forbidden to eat from the tree of knowledge which signified mature kingship and participation in God's judicial rule of creation, end quote. And sin's entrance into the world interrupted Adam's maturation, according to Mr. Lightheart. He says, sin and death are powers, ruling and dominance over the sons of Adam. And he continues, sin enters the world through the disobedient act of the one man, Adam, end quote. And so here we see sin more as a force for deformation than as an act of transgression. Absent from Adam's estate is the forensic concept of merit on Lightheart's scheme. And thus, Christ's work is seen as redemptively transformational, but not as meritorious on behalf of God's people. There's, in fact, a, a, a putting up of a false either-or dilemma here where they deny Christ's merit in order to highlight the fact that what Christ does is redemptively transformational. But I think in Reformed theology, we can hold on to both concepts. See, Lightheart merely approaches a concept of merit in his writing, where he says something like, unless Jesus saved Israel, the world would not be saved, and he saved Israel by suffering the death she had earned. And in this whole big book, that was the only statement I could find that even approximated uh, some kind of concept of merit and talking about earning. And so in Lightheart's scheme, Christ's saving work relates to his station as Davidic king and true Israel, absent any reference to his positive righteousness or merit. And what I, what I would argue, brother, is that this, con this conception of Christ's work is fundamentally at odds with not just Reformed soteriology, but also with Reformed Christology, and this really is the underlying assumption of everything that then comes out in, in these other loci of theology. And, and I think that might lay some groundwork. Um, if you want to respond to any of that, you can, but uh, you're free to take that into a discussion of federal vision soteriology and covenant theology. So I, I think maybe for our audience at home, we could kind of perhaps simplify the argument that you are making. So let me let me lay a little groundwork. Um, the covenant of works is denied 
full stop pretty much by any proponent of federal vision. So basically, the the federal vision, their definition of a covenant is relationship. And I, I think it's fair to say, and, and Mr. Groff, Zach, you can correct me, would you agree that their view of the covenant of works is that it's cold and it can't be a relationship? Is that... It, it, it's that's part of it, but they actually go further and and I think they borrow and then twist and pervert a, a glorious doctrine in denying the covenant of works. And that glorious doctrine is the creator creature distinction. And what they say is that the creator uh, or no, rather the creation, the creature, Adam, could not possibly could not possibly earn merit with God. That's impossible in any world, in any conception. And what they're basically denying is the fact that the creator is within his rights and abilities and means without contradicting himself is able to enter into covenant with man in which man can then earn a uh, certain favor from the, uh, from the creator. And so that's what they do. They, they take the creator-creature distinction, and on that basis, they seek to deny any basically pactional possibility of relationship between the two, that there can be no, uh, there can be no earning of favor or, or just you cannot be justified with the creator just because you're the creature. That's, that's what they're saying. Is that clear? Yeah, that's clear. I think just to help, again, our audience maybe... Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 2, just quick definition of the covenant of works. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. So let me just unpack that a little bit. Adam is what we call the federal head of humanity. And that means he acts as our representative. You can think federal government, representative government. Adam is our federal head. He represented all of humanity in the garden. And the condition, if you will, of the covenant of works was basically this. If Adam was obedient to the covenant of works, he would be uh, delivered into a, a uh, higher estate of prosperity. And if he was disobedient, though, obviously there would the threat was death. That's that's putting it very simply. Now, I I want to say this too, just right off the bat. When the federal vision proponents deny the covenant of works or downplay the covenant of works, they are really striking at the confessional underpinning of the 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 reformed faith. I would argue now. I understand that there's been a development of doctrine, and I understand the three forms of unity do not explicitly mention the covenant of works, but if they are claiming to operate under the auspices of the Westminster Confession and they deny the covenant of works, that's, that's a huge issue. In fact, I would go so far as to say it's foreign to the scheme of doctrine that is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Absolutely. I, I, I think that... To deny it in the way, in the manner which they deny it, really strikes at the the heart or the marrow of the gospel. Um, you know what what they want to do is uh, is basically at odds with what not only what the Westminster Confession of Faith says, but what we all understand the gospel to be. And and I know you're going to get into that when we start discussing imputation. But at this point, I want to share 
a, a really great um, observation from W.G.T. Shedd, uh, the 19th century Presbyterian theologian, where he, he discussed this very issue of the possibility of Adam earning merit. And he says, quote, the merit to be acquired under the covenant of works was pactional. He could have used the word covenantal, but that would have been a bit of a tautology. He said pactional. Adam could claim the reward in case he stood only by virtue of the promise of God, not by virtue of the original relation of a creature to the creator. And so we put another way, God was within his rights to enact such a covenant, which is precisely what he did with Adam. And that is what the Federal Vision uh, proponents, that's what they want to deny. They wanted to, to deny that God uh, could enter into some voluntary condescension, as the Westminster Confession of Faith puts it, uh, to express by way of covenant, to relate to man in that way. No, I think if we want to jump to imputation, because we've been at this for quite a while already, I think that just to kind of bring it around and maybe borrow a little bit, at least from the spirit of kind of Thomas Boston's thought, what federal vision does with the doctrine of imputation, their denial of the doctrine of justification, is though they deny the covenant of works, they bring man back under a covenant of works. So let's dive into justification. And in order to do that, I want to use the Westminster Larger Catechism question and answer 70 as kind of our base of operations here. So question 70, what is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardoneth all their sins, accepteth and accounteth their persons righteous in his sight, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputed to them and received by faith alone. It is a very good, and, and I know it was long, but really a, lot, a number of theologians have said succinct definition of justification. So you might be asking, where does the federal vision uh, differ from that? Well, first, I, I want us to understand something. Justification is a legal or forensic act. So the, the way I would, I would describe this is the sinner, if you will, is brought into the courtroom of God and dealt with with God on the bench. And it is justification that forgives their sins but also accounts them as righteous in the sight of God. Now, the federal vision movement has a very strong dislike to the idea of forensic justification or any, any legal uh, bearing on this. And so I just want to very quickly kind of um, read, read a couple quotes that would explain how they see this, because I think this is, I think this is, is uh, very important to, to grasp. Um, and obviously they're colored by the new perspective on Paul, so they flip justification on its head. But really quickly, while I'm, I'm getting to the quote on justification, Zach, have you got anything to add? 
the one thing I'll add at this point, Zach, is um, in particularly in reading Lightheart's book on the atonement, but even going back further than that, what you see them attempt to do is to take the word justification as it's used in Scripture and on that basis to deny the, the particular meaning which, uh, or the validity of assigning to it a particular specific theological meaning in systematic theology. What they, they want to broaden the meaning of the word justification to encompass a lot more than what we're specifically talking about in passages from the, the doctrinal standards of our denominations, like what you just read. And so the way they use justification is extremely elastic and nonspecific, and I would even say uh, lacking in care and resulting in a lot of confusion and, and like I said before, uh, really destructive, spiritually speaking, um, not just to just understanding, but really to, uh, to realizing uh, salvation, if that makes sense. No, that, that makes um, total, total sense. And I'm going to, I should probably do it this way. Um, in terms of justification, the, the, one of the key linchpins of justification is imputation of Christ active obedience. So if, if I was to explain this, I think the best way to probably do it is to explain it like this. When we think of justification, we quite often think of forgiveness of our sins. So we think of what we call the substitutionary atonement, Christ dying on the cross for uh, sinners and dying in their stead, uh, taking the punishment in their stead. But the other aspect of justification is an imputation of uh, righteousness of Christ, where Christ, because he's lived a sin-free, perfect life, now that sinner is seen in God's sight as perfect. So it, it just succinctly, their actual sins are forgiven by the atonement of Christ, and their lack of perfection is covered over in the external righteousness of Christ living a perfect life. Now, um, I'm going to read to you this, this quote, and it's, it's by Rich Lusk, and it's from an essay he wrote called Rome Won't Have Me. And uh, basically this, this essay is so interesting because he's, he's kind of arguing that Rome won't have me, but he also has a unique understanding of things. So um, let me just read it. He says as follows, Justification requires no transfer or imputation of anything. It does not force us to reify righteousness into something that can be shuffled around in heavenly accounting books. Rather, because I am in the righteous one and the vindicated one, I am righteous and vindicated. My Christness makes imputation redundant. I do not need the moral content of the life of righteousness transferred to me. What I need is a share in the forensic verdict passed over him at the resurrection. Now, a lot of stuff going on in this quote, but I, I want you to understand what he's doing. And, and really, the last sentence is key. When he uses forensic verdict, he's not using it in terms of 
forgiveness of sins and imputation of righteousness. He's using it in terms of the resurrection. This is a very common tactic among the Federal Vision proponents, and that is that they will argue that uh, basically the resurrection is justification. So when God raised Christ from the dead, that is our justification. And he's using that language in, a, in if you will, a non-traditional and non-confessional way. Now, what I, I think we have to see in this, in this quote is he's downplaying the significance of having the righteousness of Christ imputed, by the way, you can think of it simply as added to the account of. He is downplaying the significance of you, Christian, being clothed in Christ's righteousness, and he's forcing it all to the resurrection. He's denying that it's possible to be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Like, functionally, Christ has no righteousness that could be transferred to us. I mean, that's, yeah, that's, that's what he's, he's basically saying. Yeah, now, that's what he's claiming. This denial, this denial of imputation leads us to our second point, which is um, basically salvation by faithfulness. And so I, I mentioned earlier that they deny the covenant of works and bring us back into a covenant of works. So the way that they envision their scheme of salvation is kind of like this. You are in covenant with God, which is purely a relationship with God. Your justification is, is a broad term, and it, it gives you no merit. And there's, there's a danger. You're saved, but there's a danger, and that danger is you can fall away. And so what they end up doing is they end up they end up making it to where you must maintain your salvation by your own good works. Now it's it's interesting as as well just a note um, and this is coming out of uh, the Federal Vision and Covenant Theology by Guy Waters. Uh, he makes a point that the Federal Visionist is not very interested in are you the question? Are you saved? Doug Wilson in Reformed is not enough. Actually, says this question is kind of like navel gazing. But what they are supremely interested in is the works of faithfulness. And so, basically, instead of asking, you know, like the Philippian jailer, "What must I do to be saved?" Federal Vision operates on this premise that you just have to start doing the works of faithfulness. You need to start doing good works. And, and so I think that's a, a kind of an important thing to understand is there's a denial of Christ, active obedience. And instead, once you're in covenant with God, you're in a relationship with God, it's your duty to maintain this. And just uh, kind of so you understand the milieu, this is classic new perspective on Paul, classic shepherdism. Zach, do you have anything to add? I really don't. I think you, you have... You have hit the nail on the head uh, exactly uh, in terms of what the issue here is under this head of theology, uh, pun unintended there. Um, I, think, I think we've addressed this sufficiently, um, and we can move on to the next head of doctrine and discuss some of the ramifications of the federal vision on ecclesiology, unless you have something else you'd like to add. No, no, I, I don't. And... Um I think this is, is worth remembering. Um, Wilson's book, Reformed is Not Enough, I've read it. 
it's it's a very helpful book, and it's actually written as as a response to some of the criticism that was Doug Wilson's book, by the way, that was initially coming out against the Auburn Avenue theology. And on page 69 of Reformed is Not Enough, Doug Wilson states that the visible and invisible church, which we know from our confession and catechisms, the visible and invisible church is the paradigm in which most evangelicals operate. I would I would kind of take issue with him about that because I guarantee you that the average person going to an evangelical kind of mega church is not going to have a clue what the invisible or visible church is. But he claims that this is the paradigm which most evangelicals operate in. And then you get down in in the pages following that, he basically says that this paradigm is a bad paradigm. And I I want it to be understood that in Reformed is not enough, Doug Wilson denies the visible and invisible church, and he substitutes in his own terminology. He does this on page 74, and it's historical and eschatological. He says the historical church is a better name for the visible church, and the eschatological is a better name for the invisible church. This is, I I believe, basically a sleight of hand. Because again, the Federal Vision Movement, and we're kind of going at it through the back door, the Federal Vision Movement conceives you being in covenant with God as a relationship. And if you are baptized in the church, you are in vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And and so, so you understand what I'm saying. When they look at a church, they don't see a mixed multitude. They don't think that some people aren't saved. They think that everyone is saved unless they apostatize. And so for this, for this line of thinking, the visible and invisible church is really, I think, a threat. So there's kind of a sleight of hand which is used here in denying the visible and invisible church. Um, and I also want to just really quickly give you a little bit of honing in on the idea of covenant as a relationship. So um, that's what we've kind of said that the federal vision conceives these uh, these things as, and, and that's true, but I, I really want to give you a firm um, grounding, as it were. So uh, I'm, I'm going to first give you Steve Schlissel, who is a, a popular proponent of the federal vision. I'm going to give you his definition. And this came from, I believe it was a blog article that he released. I don't think it's any, any longer on the Internet, or it was an essay. It's called The Covenant of Peace, Part 1. And he says as follows, It is most important that we ourselves understand what covenant is. And I'm going to tell you in the most simple words what covenant is. Covenant is relationship. That is what covenant is, relationship. Now, when we speak of covenant specifically, we speak of it as a defined relationship. And next I'm going to quote from Doug Wilson in his essay, which appeared in the in the Credenda Agenda, uh, which was his magazine. I don't know if that's still being published. Zach, is it still being published? You know, I don't follow Doug Wilson. I know of um, you know other people who follow him closely for whatever reason, and we could probably ask them, but I have no idea. I don't know what he publishes. This essay was published in there, and it's called The Objectivity of the Covenant. 
And Wilson says as follows, a covenant is a relationship between persons. That relationship has conditions, stipulations, and promises. Put another way, there is no such thing as a personless or abstract covenant. Put yet another way, a covenant does not consist of a list of names, but rather is a relation between persons whose names can certainly be formed into a list. Now, just an observation on, on Doug Wilson's comment there. One, it is the closest of the, the definitions of covenant by Federal Visionist I've read to the Westminster Confessions definition. But also, again, that vital relationship that he is proposing, that there must be a relationship there that denies visible and invisible church and also denies how the Westminster Confession understands the covenant of grace. Um, so if we think about how the federal vision movement conceives of the Christian church, to kind of put a cap on this, the federal vision movement, if they walked into your church, they would see everyone who's been baptized as the elect. And the great, the great danger is not being unconverted. The great danger is apostasy. And, and some of them would go so far as to say that those who apostatized were truly in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's, that's no joke. They, they will actually say that. But they see the whole church as in covenant with Christ by the, the, basically the means of baptism. And because they see the church that way, they cannot tolerate visible versus invisible church. And they see that once you're in relationship with Christ by baptism, you are, I suppose we could say justified, and it is now your task by good works to maintain your justification. Now, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying to a degree, but I think that's a helpful understanding of how they view the church and how they view the covenant. Zach, do you have anything to add? I don't have anything to add. You, you again, hit all the high points that really need to be understood to to get a grasp for how dangerous this is i mean just th think about it on this schema <laughs> you have to you have to be able to say that someone can lose their election that's right i mean how does that that doesn't even make any sense election is in eternity past it's determined. This is one of the grounds of our assurance. But beyond that, it just makes no logical sense if you believe in an eternal God who, who is simple and pure act and, and in eternity past covenanted uh, between father and son to save a people and to save a people made up of individuals. And so thus we're elected. I mean, how, how could you possibly lose that? No, but they, and, and I mean, this, the shameful thing is, and, and this is one of the hard parts when you're talking about federal vision, is everything is, is connected. All the doctrines are interconnected, right? But you're right. How can you believe that if you believe in an eternal God and the, the purpose of election standing sure? Well, you, you can't. I mean, it, it basically defaults into kind of, some weird, I guess we could say quasi-Romanistic Arminianism. Like, it, it's, it's really um, appalling. Now, we said under ecclesiology is their sacramentology. I mentioned paedo-communion and presumptive regeneration. I want to speak to that really quickly. I, I believe paedo-communion is an errant practice. I believe uh, presumptive regeneration is an errant view. 
But holding to either of those or even both of those in tandem does not necessarily make one a federal visionist. But federal visionists do tend, say, 80 to 90 percent of the time to hold to those views. But there's a little more with the sacraments, and I'll, I'll let Zach, you explain some of their, I guess, sacramental oddity. Well, um, with baptism, uh, f- for the most part, it seems as though they do hold to a view of baptismal regeneration. They want to take the passage in, in the Petrine literature, baptism saves, and they want to, to take that literally to mean that water baptism saves you full stop, period. End of story. Um so that's, that's kind of the, the quick and dirty uh, version of their view of baptism. On, again, on the whole, not, not every single one of them is, is, is going to line up with every single one of these beliefs. There's a lot of variety. But then in terms of uh, the more, I would say, front and center issue is their view of communion. And that is that once you're in the covenant community, uh, even before you're able to examine yourself, before you're able to give a credible profession of faith, uh, you get to come to the table as a member of the community to feast uh, at the supper. And then their understanding of what exactly the supper is, uh, is, is really beholden to that Mercersburg theology, which you mentioned before in terms of understanding the real presence of Christ uh, in the sacrament. So whereas I would say their view of baptism is very Lutheran, their view of communion is... Maybe a little bit Lutheran, but really more in line with Mercersburg theology, which was probably influenced by Lutheranism anyway. And um, both of these, the point at, at the end of the story, the, the point here for me anyway, is both of these are outside the bounds of confessional reform theology. No, that's, that's right. You cannot in good conscience subscribe to either the three forms of unity or to the Westminster standards and... and <laughs> and and hold to these views. I think one nuance that we should add in relation to their, um, I guess, view of the Lord's Supper is because they deny the imputation of Christ and they bring you under a covenant of works, they consider the Lord's Supper to, to basically be vital in strengthening you for doing the good works that you must. I shouldn't say doing the good works that you must do because they're not going to have a list enumerated. The Lord's Supper is vital for strengthening you to maintain your justification. Good to point out. Yeah, so they that's how they see it. Um, I, I think we've kind of crossed... Every all the vital things off our list, I, I think that the last place we really need to go is in hermeneutics, and I, I will turn this over to, to Zach, but I, I will say one thing. Um, if you think about the Reformed faith, there is a basic hermeneutic that the Reformed Church operates under, and it's, it is enshrined in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, and that is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and that's commonly called the analogy of faith, in Latin, the analogia fide, and Basically, Federal Vision denies this, and Zach is going to explain to you how they deny it. You know, it's it's funny. I was thinking about this more even just the past couple of days preparing for this interview, and I don't know that they deny it, but I think they turn it on its head. And so functionally, they're denying it. And this is what I mean by that, Zach. When we say Scripture is to interpret Scripture— or we, use, we throw out fancy Latin terms like analogia scriptura or analogia fide or whatever, 
What we're saying is that difficult passages ought to be interpreted in light of easy-to-understand passages. And we are to interpret difficult verses or phrases in light of the surrounding context. And, you know, you have concentric circles of context within a given passage, within a given book of the Bible, within uh, a given section of Scripture. And, and that's how uh, we can wrestle through some of the difficulties of, uh, that, that attend reading a, a book of literature compiled over thousands of years by dozens of authors inspired by the Holy Spirit unifying it all together. And what federal visionists do, and in fact what all heretics throughout the centuries of the Christian faith do, is interpret all Scripture through difficult-to-understand passages. So they reverse the order. You get what I'm saying? No, I, I totally do. And I think we see that in, in Federal Vision, and, and particularly in Peter Lightheart's writing, in James Jordan's writing, what you have are uh, these interpretations of what I would consider clear passages of Scripture in light of difficult-to-understand passages of Scripture, thus flying into flights of fanciful speculation and what we call interpretative maximalism, which is not particularly helpful for either the formation or information of our faith or the, the, the practice of the Christian life. You mentioned earlier, uh, and I, I think this might be an apt and easy example, Peter, where basically baptism saves, right? Um, there's, the Scripture has a lot to say, particularly the New Testament Scripture, but even Old Testament about circumcision. There's a lot about the sacrament of baptism in the Scripture. And so I think... Perhaps uh, what would be exemplary of this, this mode of their hermeneutic is they're saying baptism saves full stop, but not taking into account the entirety of Scripture and not letting Scripture interpret Scripture in, in that particular area. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I think that's good. And I would take it further, and I would say that, that they, they take baptism saves full stop, boom. It means what it, it seems to mean just on the face, taking those two words together. And then they want to take their understanding gleaned from two words together and apply it to reimagine all the other, what I would consider clearer passages of Scripture that talk about the function of baptism in the life of the believer in marking him as a member of the covenant community. And, and so they take, it's not just that they have a faulty understanding of difficult-to-understand passages, that they then take that faulty understanding and impose it on everything else. And, and functionally demolish the integrity of the reform system of doctrine. And as you said, the analogia fide. And I, I think that brings us to a nice kind of conclusion. Um, and, and I know that we had we'd thought about this and had some questions we wanted to ask, but I guess my the first thing I would like to say just concluding is I hope that anyone that listens to this uh, can come away at least saying, you know, honestly, the federal vision and the proponents of this particular school of thought, though not unified, they do deviate from the historic standards of the Reformed Church. And I think that is, that is very plain. And I think we you know, need to remember that they, they do deviate. And, and we've explained it, again, to give kind of a quick recap. Their view of covenant is not in line 
with the Westminster Confession of Faith definition. If you're, if you're wondering what that is, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, paragraph 1. Uh, their view, their denial of the covenant of works is explicitly against the confession of faith. Uh, their view of justification as well as the denial of imputation of Christ's active obedience is also directly contrary to the Westminster Confession of Faith as well as larger and shorter catechisms. Their, their view of the church, and actually I thought about this and I should say this now, uh, some people will probably say, you know, you went after Wilson on denial of the visible and invisible church, and they will say, we know that Wilhelmus Abrockel and Theodorus van der Groe, or I guess in Dutch it would be van der Groe, uh, both deny visible and invisible church distinctions. And they are kind of Dutch Puritans. They've been recently translated within the past 20 years. Um, just to quickly address that, the denial uh, by Abrockel a visible and invisible church is due to a sect that had arisen, arisen in the Netherlands called the Laetiborians. No, it's not, sorry, Labadeus. Laetiborians are a different Dutch sect. The Laetiborians were 19th century. Uh, they laid the groundwork for what is now called the Old Reformed Churches. That's the Laetiborians. But the Latabeists um, were founded by a guy by the name of uh, Jean de Labadie. And just so it, it, it's, I guess, understood, um, Jean de Labadie hyper-emphasized the distinction between visible and invisible church and basically wanted uh, incontrovertible proof that one was part of the invisible church before you could join his church. And I think that I'm, I'm really oversimplifying, but I think that that led to a heavy reaction by the Reformed Church in the Netherlands as some of her best theologians against a very helpful uh, paradigm for understanding the church. And so that's why Abrockel and van der Groe deny it. And they do not, I, I want to be very clear, Abrockel and van der Groe and other um, Dutch theologians that deny visible and invisible church do it for very different reasons than Doug Wilson does it in, in Reformed is not enough. Very good. Zach, I appreciate you bringing that up. And, and I'm, I'm looking for a summary statement here from one of our denominational uh, reports. And, and, you know, the PCA has nine kind of meaty declarations uh, concerning uh, the federal vision, and I would say even against federal vision. But the OPC, believe it or not, has 20 a bit more pithy uh, statements here. And it's and, and I'm just going to read these as a summary and, and particularly keeping in mind the question, is the federal vision a heresy? Is the federal vision a heresy? Well, consider what it teaches. Or uh, here we go. The, the committee of the OPC believes that the following points that are held by some one or the other advocates of federal vision are out of accord with Scripture and our doctrinal standards. One, pitting Scripture and confession against each other. Two. Regarding the enterprise of systematic theology as inherently rationalistic. Three, a monocovenantalism that sees one covenant originating in the intertrinitarian fellowship into which man is invited, thus flattening the concept of covenant and denying the distinction between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Four, election is primarily corporate and eclipsed by covenant. Five, seeing covenant as only conditional. Six, a denial of the covenant of works and of the fact that Adam was in a relationship with God that was legal as well as filial. Seven, a denial 
of a covenant of grace distinct from the covenant of works. Eight, a denial that the law given in Eden is the same as that more fully published at Mount Sinai and that it requires perfect obedience. Nine, viewing righteousness as relational, not moral. Ten, a failure to make clear the difference between our faith and Christ's. Eleven, a denial of the imputation of the act of obedience of Christ and our justification. Twelve, defining justification exclusively as a forgiveness of sins. 13. The reduction of justification to Gentile inclusion. 14. Including works by use of faithfulness, obedience, etc. in the very definition of faith. 15. Failing to affirm an infallible perseverance and the indefectibility of grace. 16. Teaching baptismal regeneration. 17. Denying the validity of the concept of the invisible church. 18. An overly objectified sacramental efficacy that downplays the need for faith and that tends toward an ex opere operato view of the sacraments. 19, teaching pedo communion. And 20, ecclesiology that eclipses and swallows up soteriology. In considering the question, how concerned ought we to be about this movement? Well, if any one of those 20 uh, issues there came up in, in an examination of a candidate for the ministry in one of our presbyteries or in the interview of a pastor candidate in one of our churches, I hope that you would be concerned. I hope that you would seek some clarification and to address those concerns because these things strike not only at the vitals of, of our system of doctrine, but at the vitals of our religion. And, and really, they need to be pushed back against. And where they are gaining currency or even uh, being entertained with an audience anywhere in the Church of Christ, we should be concerned and, and we should seek uh, to address those concerns. Uh, certainly, um, these are dangerous ideas at odds with Scripture and, and with what we understand the gospel to be. And so... I think that we should be gravely concerned about the federal vision even today. Um, at the same time, I don't think that we ought to be hunting for federal vision under every rock and every nook and cranny. And um, we should understand when evaluating error in the church that there are grades of error and degrees of error, but all error bears a resemblance to to all other errors. And so um, we we ought to be charitable with those in, in the church with whom we come into contact, even though we want to stand our ground and not compromise at all uh, when it comes right down to it. But at the end of the day, the big question that I want to address here at the conclusion is, is the federal vision a heresy? Certainly from within uh, the Reformed faith, we can say without any equivocation that the federal vision is a heresy. Um, and and really has no room in reformed churches and uh and ought not to be entertained in the courts of the church at all i i think you're totally correct and the pithy comments from the opc i greatly uh, appreciated and one other thing i would say is i think i think for me and and obviously anyone who knows me would agree with this i really hate presumptive regeneration, baptismal regeneration, pedo-communion, and so on. And so the federal vision, I find it to be particularly repugnant and particularly obnoxious. Uh, and not, not only those two things are obviously elements of it, but there's additional elements. I, I think we have to be very direct 
and I'm, I'm comfortable being this direct, and I, I don't believe that I have the authority to anathematize anyone, but anyone who denies the imputation of Christ's active obedience and instead tries to say that Christ really merited nothing and they can merit it all themselves, I do not believe that person knows the saving grace of God. And that's just, I say that somberly, I say that soberly, but I say that uh, seriously. Agreed. And and, and I, I might even go a little, a step further than you, Zach. I would say anyone who denies that Christ merited salvation for us or merited our justification, anyone who would deny that, that statement all by itself, I think, does not know either the saving power of, of Christ's work and person or the depth and depravity of sin. No, that's that's absolutely true, and that's also what I was I was going to bring up is, I mean, if you really believe that your good works could in some way merit you justification, I don't think you understand the the depravity of your own heart or the nature of sin. Um, so I I think maybe in in conclusion we can say federal vision is sadly still around. I would I would argue that Federal Vision is going to be like Mercersburg and that is, you know, when you go hunting for Mercersburg theology, it's not there, but its specter looms large in in American reformed theology. I would say that's my concern with Federal Vision when you try to go hunt it down, it's not always there, but certainly its influence and its specter uh, haunts us, I think, still to this day. And I, I would also say, though, there are, um, particularly in the in the CREC, which you mentioned, um, which I think is the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, there is a home for federal vision, and it is there being actively promoted. So it's, it's not that federal vision has died down. It still has an influence. I would say probably, from my vantage, observing the past year, it is. It has been growing in the past year, and I'm. I'm particularly privileged, I would say, just to be on this podcast as a Greenville student uh, with you, and for us to be able to really clearly express uh, the seminary's history in relation to the Federal Vision Movement. Our uh, again long and and laudable history against it, opposing it, as well as the fact that. Uh, to attest to the fact of why it is so very pernicious and repugnant. And I would say that it is a, a pernicious theology. Thanks, Zach. And and one correction, uh, Crec originally was called the Confederation of Reformed Evangelical Churches, and they changed their name at some point to Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches. And uh, so I think currently it is Communion, not Confederation, but that's just... A point of nomenclature. Um, I would encourage any listeners that want to follow up on this to send in questions for our faith and, and practice uh, segment of the podcast, where I interview Dr. Piper and and submit listener questions to him to answer. Particularly anyone that might have concerns about seminary education uh, allowing room for federal vision errors. And I don't mean here at Greenville Seminary in particular, but just seminary education in general and, uh, and really what we ought to be doing to um, promote the peace and purity of the church in combating 
all forms of heresy, not just the federal vision, but other errors as well, such as critical race theory, side B gay Christianity, feminism, and, and other issues that seem to be coming up again and again and again. Zach, thank you for your time. I've really enjoyed uh, spending this past hour or so with you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a privilege to be the Zach attack and to take federal vision out back and give it a good whooping. <laughs> Thanks, Zach. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.